0: While I will eventually do the obligatory and perhaps unnecessary episode on why I decided to start this podcast in the first place. It's worth saying now that for me, the podcast really starts when Louise Glick was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. I had recorded a few other poems uh, that were uh, posted here before then. But that morning, I drove to the grocery store and recorded one of Glick's poems, and that was the very first uh, poem that I posted here, or that I kept here. I deleted the early ones. And that was also the one that gave me the hint as to what this podcast might be, because I didn't want, as I had done with the other poems I had recorded, just simply give a title, a name, and read the poem, I was driven, even if it was only ten seconds, to say, this is a poem by Louise Glick, and I'm reading it because she won the Nobel Prize in Literature today. Just that simple announcement that uh, simply allowing myself to speak for ten seconds in a way that wasn't reading a poem by somebody or a poem by myself Has really opened out what I thought this podcast would be, which has allowed for me to speak this way right now, or in all the personal ways I have in other episodes. And it certainly led to me being able to do what I've been doing recently with Walt Whitman, of simply reading a biography of him and inserting my own commentary before, during, and after. Now in the time that Glick won the Nobel Prize I decided to get a copy of her collected poems uh, 1962 to 2012 to see what it is that the Nobel people think is the kind of poetry written by an American in the last 50 years that deserves a Nobel Prize. I've wondered if people thought the same thing when T.S. Eliot won the Nobel Prize or when I believe he won it in 48, when Yeats won the Nobel Prize in 20, 1923, uh, when Seamus Haney won in 1995 or 1996, I believe. Did people who hadn't read any of these poets' work decide to just see, well, what do people think is good poetry these days? What do people think is representative poetry of the last few decades? So I picked up Glick's book mm-hmm. And I'm still sort of unsure what to make of it. In a strange way, her collected poems, taken as a whole, doesn't really sit with me all that well. But I've had the experience with other poets that when I just go back to the to the favorite poems of theirs that I found, suddenly their stature just shoots straight up in the air. When you when you're just reading what you think are the best of their poems, it can be quite thrilling. So it might be that when I go back to her poems over the next few months and just read the ones that I really loved, that I will see her as being pretty central. I'm not sure, but without question, the, what I imagine got her the Nobel prize are two collections, one called error from 1990 and the second, The Wild Iris, from 1992. These definitely seem to be the hinge on which all of her other collections sort of... It's the ones that the early collections lead up to, and it's the ones that the ones after it, the collections after them, sort of fall away from and don't seem to match, at least not until... Let's see, what, what date is it? Her 2009 collection called The Village Life. And I know she's written two since then, uh, but I have not read those yet. Um, So I wanted to read six poems from her collection Ararat, which is probably my favorite of all the ones that I read from her collected poems. And I wanted to read them as an example of how someone can do autobiography and do it very well. It strikes me that reading the poems in Ararat, which were generally about the death of her father and the death of her sister, that it doesn't even provide a model for poets on how to do this, because I really don't know how it is that she does do what she does. It's not anything that anyone can imitate. It seems to be, even if you're one of those people who thinks that the poems I'm about to read feel like cut-up bits of prose, I saw a lot of jealous or just upset people when Glick won the Nobel Prize saying that. Her poems are just cut up bits of prose, but I don't think that's the case. Probably the best poem that I can think of from the 20th century, maybe after Eliot's Four Quartets, is Allen Ginsberg's Kaddish. And it is so personal and so autobiographical that I almost don't even think of it as being a poem. It doesn't matter to me what you call it. Because it seems to me pure humanity, pure expression in some way. And certainly in a way that Ginsburg was never able to match again. Usually he is just seems to be trying to shock you or he's just spilling out his mind. Um. While he may have done lots of rewriting of other poems, it rarely seems to be the case. But in Kaddish, he hits a note that he never did ever again, and that I don't think anyone else did ever again. And and that's the same sense that I get from the poems in Glick's book Ararat, where we finally see what autobiography can bring out of a poet writing in the last 50 or so years. Because biography and what what we would call free verse, free verse biography is, it seems to be, all we see nowadays when it comes to poetry. Poetry online, especially on blogs or many popular poets. Um, and it's usually pretty terrible. But Glick has a way of entering her own life and describing her own life as a sister, as a daughter, a daughter of her mother as well as a daughter of her father, and also as a parent that I've really never encountered before. And so with that long prologue, here are six poems from Louise Glick's 1990 book, Erarat. Lost Love by Louise Glick My sister spent a whole life in the earth. She was born, she died. In between, not one alert look, not one sentence. She did what babies do, she cried, but she didn't want to be fed. Still, my mother held her, trying to change first fate and then history something did change. When my sister died, my mother's heart became very cold, very rigid, like a tiny pendant of iron. Then it seemed to me my sister's body was a magnet. I could feel it draw my mother's heart into the earth so it would grow. Appearances by Louise Glick. When we were children, my parents had our portraits painted, then hung them side by side over the mantel, where we couldn't fight. I'm the dark one, the older one. My sister is blonde, the one who looks angry because she can't talk. It never bothered me not talking. That hasn't changed much. My sister's still blonde, not different from the portrait. Except we're adults now, we've been analyzed. We understand our expressions. My mother tried to love us equally, dressed us in the same dresses. She wanted us perceived as sisters. That's what she wanted from the portraits. You need to see them hanging together, facing one another, Separated, they don't make the same statement. You wouldn't know what the eyes were fixed on. They'd seem to be staring into space. This was the summer we went to Paris, the summer I was seven. Every morning we went to the convent. Every afternoon we sat still, having the portraits painted, wearing green cotton dresses, the square neck marked with a ruffle. Monsieur Davanzo, added the flesh tones. My sister's ruddy, mine faintly bluish. To amuse us, Madame Davanzo, hung cherries over our ears. It was something I was good at, sitting still, not moving. I did it to be good, to please my mother, to distract her from the child, that died. I wanted to be child enough. I'm still the same, like a toy that can't stop and go, but not to change direction. Anyone can love a dead child, love an absence. My mother's strong. She doesn't do what's easy. She's like her mother. She believes in family, in order. She doesn't change her house, just freshens the paint occasionally. Sometimes something breaks, gets thrown away, but that's all. She likes to sit there, on the blue couch, looking up at her daughters, at the two who lived. She can't remember how it really was, how any time she ministered to one child, loved that child, she damaged the other. You could say she's like an artist with a dream, a vision. Without that, she'd have been torn apart. We were like the portraits, always together. You had to shut out one child to see the other. That's why only the painter noticed, a face already so controlled, so withdrawn, and too obedient, the clear eyes saying, if you want me to be a nun, I'll be a nun. Brown Circle by Louise Glick My mother wants to know why, if I hate family so much, I went ahead and had one. I don't answer my mother. What I hated was being a child, having no choice about what people I loved. I don't love my son the way I meant to love him. I thought I'd be the lover of orchids who finds red trillium growing in the pine shade and doesn't touch it, doesn't need to possess it. What I am is the scientist who comes to that flower with a magnifying glass and doesn't leave, though the sun burns a brown circle of grass around the flower, which is more or less the way my mother loved me. I must learn to forgive my mother now that I am helpless to spare my son. Child Crying Out by Louise Glick You're asleep now, your eyelids quiver. What son of mine could be expected to rest quietly, to live even one moment free of wariness? The night's cold, you've pushed the covers away. As for your thoughts, your dreams, I'll never understand the claim of a mother and a child's soul. So many times I made that mistake in love, taking some wild sound to be the soul, exposing itself. But not with you, even when I held you constantly. You were born. You were far away. Whatever those cries meant, they came and went, whether I held you or not, whether I was there or not. The soul is silent. If it speaks at all, it speaks in dreams. (laughs) Celestial Music by Louise Glick I have a friend who still believes in heaven. Not a stupid person, yet with all she knows, she literally talks to God. She thinks someone listens in heaven. On earth, she is unusually competent, brave, too, able to face unpleasantness. We found a caterpillar dying in the dirt, greedy ants crawling all over it. I'm always moved by weakness, by disaster always eager to oppose vitality, but timid also, quick to shut my eyes, whereas my friend was able to watch, to let events play out according to nature. For my sake, she intervened, brushing a few ants off the torn thing, and set it down across the road. My friend says I shut my eyes to God, that nothing else explains my aversion to reality she says i'm like the child who buries her head in the pillow so as not to see the child who tells herself that light causes sadness my friend is like the mother patient urging me to wake up an adult like herself a courageous person in my dreams my friend reproaches me we're walking on the same road except it's winter now is telling me that when you love the world, you hear celestial music. Look up, she says. When I look up, nothing. Only clouds, snow, a white business in the trees, like brides leaping to a great height. Then I'm afraid for her. I see her caught in a net deliberately, cast over the earth. In reality, we sit side by side of the road, watching the sunset. From time to time, the silence pierced by a bird call. It's this moment we're both trying to explain, the fact that we're at ease with death, with solitude. My friend draws a circle in the dirt. Inside, the caterpillar doesn't move. She's always trying to make something whole, something beautiful, an image capable of life apart from her. very quiet. It's peaceful sitting here, not speaking. The composition fixed, the road turning suddenly dark, the air going cool, here and there, the rocks shining and glittering. It's this stillness that we both love. The love of form is a love of endings. First Memory by Louise Glick Long ago, I was wounded. I lived to revenge myself against my father. Not for what he was, for what I was. From the beginning of time in childhood, I thought that pain meant I was not loved. It meant I loved.